Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masterson. Today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the two-day extension of the pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas as more hostages are released and explore the possibility of a ceasefire as well as discuss the probability of a resumption of the war. Joining us is Brian Katulis, a senior fellow and vice president of policy at the Middle East Institute. He was formerly a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, where he focused on U.S. national security policy in the Middle East and South Asia. He lived and worked in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and Egypt and was a Fulbright scholar in Amman, Jordan, where he conducted research on the peace treaty between Israel and Jordan. An Arabic speaker, he's the co-author of The Prosperity Agenda. Then we look into the exodus of Senate and House members of Congress who are quitting in many cases because of frustration with polarization and gridlock as a minority within a minority prevents majority rule. Joining us is James Thurber, the University Distinguished Professor of Government and founder and former director of the Center for Congressional and Presidential Studies at American University. He's the author of numerous books and more than 80 articles and chapters on Congress, interest groups and lobbying, and campaigns and elections. And he's the author of Congress and Diaspora Politics, The Influence of Ethnic and Foreign Lobbying, and most recently, Campaigns and Elections, American Style. Then finally, we'll assess how much the deteriorating relations between Canada and India and tensions between the U.S. and India over an assassination plot on American soil are impacting joint efforts to deal with China's growing influence in the Indo-Pacific. Joining us is Cleo Pascal, a non-resident senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, focusing on the Indo-Pacific region and the strategic implications of the intersections of geopolitical, geoeconomic, and geophysical change. She has briefed government departments in the United States, the United Kingdom, and the European Union, India, and many others, and she's the author of Global Warring, How Environmental, Economic, and Political Crises Will Redraw the World Map. She recently testified before Congress on Chinese influence operations in the Pacific Islands, and we will discuss her article at The Guardian, Three Upcoming Events That Could Torpedo Pacific Peace. And joining us now is Brian Katulis, who's a senior fellow and vice president of policy at the Middle East Institute. He was formerly a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, where he focused on U.S. national security policy in the Middle East and South Asia. He lived and worked in the West Bank and Gaza Strip and Egypt, and was a Fulbright scholar in Amman, Jordan, where he conducted research on the peace treaty between Israel and Jordan. An Arabic speaker, he's the co-author of The Prosperity Agenda. Welcome to Background Briefing, Brian Katulis. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us, Brian. And Israel and Hamas have agreed to extend their ceasefire for two more days past Monday, according to the Qatari government, who've been actively brokering these deals. Um, And uh, is there a possibility that it could continue on, even despite the fact that Prime Minister Netanyahu has made it clear that he will resume operations will quote, the full force as soon as the current deal expires? But as they buy more days and get more people out. How do you see this going forward? I I, I think they could get um, some more hostages out in a few more days of a ceasefire, but I think the long-term prospects don't look uh, optimistic. Uh, And it's not just because of Prime Minister Netanyahu and Israel, but also if you look at the positions 
of groups like Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Um, what I think we may be seeing is a temporary respite because you basically have two different actors, uh, the Israeli government and then the Hamas group, along with some of its partners in Gaza, who are fundamentally at odds. And um, as devastating as the war has been and uh, how uh, many of us want to see this come to an end, unfortunately, the parties to the conflict have expressed positions that don't seem like they're going to be dealt with in a diplomatic forum and uh, looks quite likely will will uh, go back to some form of conflict and violence, unfortunately. So, so far, 58 hostages have been released, including 39 Israelis. How how many more do you think? I mean, I don't see the Hamas or whoever, Islamic Jihad, releasing any Israeli soldiers, many of whom are women who were captured on the border. Yeah, so at the very least, if we get two more days, we may get a couple more dozen uh, hostages out. Um, there's a key question here in Washington everybody's focused on is also the Americans. There's any number of an additional eight to ten. Uh, it's, it's unclear still to this day, uh, and, and some of this information is kept pretty close to the vest. So we got uh, an Israeli-American little girl, four-year-old out um, over this past uh, few days. Um, but but it, it really is sort of a, a question of, I think, almost unfortunately a matter of time that Israel will, re- will resume some of the strikes and that there's some elements of Hamas, uh, and the militant wings um, there that have been firing rockets into Israel, that's been paused. I, I unfortunately see that the structure of the situation is just, it's still pretty bad because there's, um, we're, we're trying to get sort of the bare minimum here from a group like Hamas and, and some of its partners to get children released, to get uh, elderly and others. And um, Netanyahu and Israel is facing a lot of pressure from his public to continue these releases, but we may be um, coming to, to an end here. I, I hope not. I hope that there's a pathway to some sort of conflict resolution and more durable ceasefire, but it just looks like the forces that are arrayed on the ground there and the incentives um, will, will lead them back to some form of uh, additional conflict that I think will be quite deadly, especially for those who've moved to southern the southern part of the Gaza Strip. So as Hamas's credibility and and importance in diplomatically speaking in the Middle East is is on the rise. I imagine the U.S.'s credibility and diplomatic influence is is on the wane, isn't it? I mean, it, it's going to be difficult for us to be an honest broker, isn't it, in the future? Um, well, um, so on, what I heard on recent trips to the region was that America uh, was seen as backing um, Israel's military campaign that has uh, been quite deadly for innocent Palestinians, especially children. So that, that's created a very, uh, I think, dark cloud that I think would rival the image problems America had during the 2003 Iraq war and its aftermath. And then certain episodes uh, after 2011 when there were various uh, Arab uprisings and civil wars across the region and that the Obama administration wasn't viewed in a very positive light in terms of how it reacted. Uh, I also think it rivals some of the things that President Trump did um, when he instituted a ban of Muslim visitors to the United States. So there's there's definitely an image problem at the popular level 
in many parts of the Middle East. Um, I think the leadership in some of the countries is quite different because the leadership of many of the Arab partners that uh, America has, although they forged different relationships with Russia and China in recent years, they still look to the United States as being a, a key guarantor of their own security, right? So um, they don't have many good options, and America is seen as the best of a range of options they have. And here I'm talking about countries like Jordan or Saudi Arabia or Egypt. So even though there's at a popular level, I think, discontent, it may not be anything new um, uh, about America in, in much of the Arab world. I think at the leadership level, there's there's just, you know, no other actor, not 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 anyone in Europe, not not Putin in Russia, not the Chinese have really been playing as active a role as, as the United States in trying to get to at least a temporary ceasefire. <laughs> but, Brian, when you're talking about the security of Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Jordan, it's security for the leadership against its own people, isn't it? And particularly in Jordan, where you've got a massive Palestinian population. I think it's more Palestinians than there are Jordanians. Uh, and then Egypt, uh, it would seem that the pressure on that border is... I mean, I can't see Egypt in any way accepting... Gaza, in other words, having the having the Gazans, you know, suddenly dumped on Egypt, wouldn't that create massive problems for them? So, I'm just wondering the extent to which U.S. influence may U.S. may have a lot of influence with the governments, but aren't the governments looking over their shoulder at their own people? Yes, for sure they are, and I think they're also. That's why many of these governments from the get-go have called for immediate ceasefire, which um, before this uh, this pause in fighting. The U.S. wasn't there. You know, uh, Secretary of State Blinken and Joe Biden articulated a position that was basically um, centered on Israel's right of self-defense. And they also backed the stated goal of trying to eliminate Hamas. Much of the Arab countries, I think uh, their leadership's been at the popular level, wanted to see a ceasefire. Now, I think the interesting thing to watch here is that, you know, trying to anticipate how this all ends while we're stuck in the middle of a very volatile conflict and tensions not only in Gaza, but then you also see an uptick in incidents in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, the Houthis in Yemen. Um, what's interesting to start to think about is where does this all lead? And my impression is that here in Washington, in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, also in Ramallah, there's not a clear conception of where this all goes, right? Even when the ceasefire ends, um, and hopefully it ends to something that's more, much more durable and a diplomatic solution. Again, I find it hard to see the pathway to that. But uh, if there's more conflict, all of this should actually be then uh, connected to some sort of vision of where this all ends. And quite clearly, um, Israel and the United States aren't going to be the ones that are doing the reconstruction of Gaza. Um, uh, Arab partners, I think, are going to be expected to with that bill and to offer a lot of that support. So that's why I think it's important, even with this gap between governments and their people in the region, for the United States to work with a lot of these governments to, to plan not only not only to deal with the current crisis, but to plan for the future. But Netanyahu's more or less indicated that he, he may want to occupy Gaza. I mean, maybe he's occupying rubble, but the question is what happens to those people? Yeah, you can't no, dump them on Egypt. That, I mean, if that's his end game, that's not going to work, is it? 
Exactly. And that's that's the point of having a much tougher discussion about the end game and not just with Netanyahu. If you look at his government, this um, a government that he put together, there's multiple voices on this question of what this is, is all driving towards. I've been in briefings uh, from Israel Defense Force uh, commanders personally who say that there's no way we're going to occupy uh, Gaza, which was completely at odds the very day that the prime minister of the country was saying this. So I don't think they have a clear game plan. And that's worrisome, because if you think about some of the mistakes the United States itself made in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, um, some of the biggest errors we made day to day, month to month, and the things that prolonged wars and conflicts was not actually having a clear vision of the end state. And that's certainly the case, I think, uh, when you look at not just Netanyahu, but the leadership, collective leadership of Israel right now, they still don't have a clear answer to the question of how does this all end. So part of the agreement, from what I understand, is in terms of this truce and this uh, prisoner exchange, is that Israel will not fire any of its overheads, its uh, drones, etc. Is that still happening? Is that because that, that would uh, presumably be advantageous to Hamas? I'm not certain about that particular aspect of. of of the deal, right? I think uh, the thrust of the discussions have been about how to get more humanitarian aid into the uh, southern part of the Gaza Strip, and um, I'm about to head into another briefing where we hear, we're going to hear more detail on it. But I, on the on the drone overflights and the aerial overflights, I'm not certain um, of of those particular aspects right now. And a lot of this, some of the things that come out in the media, particularly when it comes to hostage negotiations, but anything related to it, there's often information that's slightly off because those who are actually conducting the negotiations uh, often just do not talk about, you know, the nature of those. And then um, that, that's why I think it's difficult to really say what's, what's happening day to day. There's also been reports of even even in the context of the ceasefires, uh, Israel Defense Forces firing on certain people who were not combatants. So, it's, you know, it's, there's never, I think, 100% uh, foolproof uh, ceasefire in cases like this. But on, on that specific question, I don't think there's much clarity there. So the U.S. De- Defense Minister Lloyd Austin has been talking to his Israeli counterpart, apparently trying to restrain the IDF from escalating their exchanges with Hezbollah on the northern border. What's going on there? Is there any concern? Because I know Zarif, the former Iranian negotiator, suggested that Israel or Netanyahu wants to drag the U.S. into a war with Iran and that one of the reasons Iran is restraining Hezbollah is that they don't want to take the bait. Do you you buy into any of that? Well, I think um, the U.S., before any conversations the Secretary of Defense had, and it's been ongoing, uh, the U.S. sent... Uh, additional forces to the region, including two aircraft carriers. And I, I wouldn't put much stock in what the former foreign minister of Iran has to say about this, because uh, anything that comes from those circles tends to be uh, propaganda um, aimed at trying to influence and shape the debate here and in other places as well. And I think the simple fact of the matter is that um, many of Iran's partners across the region, Hezbollah, the Houthis, uh, certain groups in Iraq, They've actually stepped up their attacks against the United States, causing the United States to um, uh, respond with more targeted strikes. So I I would be surprised um, 
uh, the reason why someone like Javed Zarif is not a prime reference for me on Israel's national security is that I don't think he really is part of those discussions. My my sense is that the Israelis themselves do not want to see a widening conflict across the region because they already have their hands full in simply trying to get some of their hostages home and then trying to deal with an immediate threat from Hamas, which, you know, though though that's been quelled for a few days with the ceasefire, I think the last thing they want to see right now is this opening up to other fronts because they're, the, the Israeli uh, uh, military is already strained uh, by this operation in Gaza, and they, they don't need the, the additional strain of other fronts opening up. So then what is restraining Hezbollah? I mean, uh, why why aren't think, they joining in? That, yeah, I think they they re, they have the vivid memories of how much um, uh, the 2006 war caused so much damage uh, inside of Lebanon, and I think they they also look out over the horizon and they see a U.S. aircraft carrier. Where I don't know if you re, repeatedly Joe Biden and others said one word, which was "don't," and that was a warning to groups like Hezbollah as well as Iran to not expand this conflict across the region. And I think a key part of it is um, the balance of deterrence that Israel imposed through its actions now backed up with U.S. support uh, to, to try to deal with Hezbollah and other uh, Iranian partners. I think it's working so far, but this is what makes things everything so dangerous and tenuous is that at a moment's notice, uh, an errant missile or rocket could actually shift the balance and, and cause a wider, a wider conflict to erupt. So just in closing then, uh, Brian Katulis, Israel's, uh, or at least Netanyahu's and the military's and the IDF's determination, which they've expressed, is to destroy and eliminate Hamas, which I guess is, means killing 30,000 of their fighters. Is that going to happen? It seems unlikely to me. Um, if it does, and you do the math, and they, they've stated publicly that uh, Israel has stated that they've killed about 3,000-plus Hamas fighters. It's hard to verify this as an independent uh, analyst outside. A uh, month and a half into this, if you do the math, you're talking about a very deadly war for innocent Palestinians as well as uh, the Hamas fighters. I think the, the, the bigger question, you know, and we face this, the United States and some of its partners in the fight against the Islamic State, the bigger question is, is linked to not only eliminating commanders and people who are involved in the initial attack, but then what are the conditions that uh, all of these actions, the military actions, the humanitarian aid, the diplomacy, what is this all driving towards? Um, because uh, if there's not an answer to that question, then you could be looking at a very prolonged conflict that is uh, disastrous from a humanitarian standpoint, from a civilian protection standpoint. It already has been in the first month and a half, it could only get worse. So my hope is, and though I was, I'm pessimistic that the ceasefire will be extended, my hope is that the foothold of these uh, that's been gained by these conversations to bring home hostages, to let get in more humanitarian aid, that, that there could be some hope for a diplomatic resolution. I, I just wouldn't bet a lot of money on it right now because of the stated positions of the Israeli government, as well as what Hamas says it wants as its end state. It's, it's hard to mediate. Uh, between two different forces that simply want to obliterate each other. Well, Brian Katulis, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Great. Thanks for having me on.
And again, I've been speaking with Brian Katulis, who's a senior fellow and vice president of policy at the Middle East Institute. He was formerly a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, where he focused on U.S. national security policy in the Middle East and South Asia. He lived and worked in the West Bank and Gaza Strip and Egypt and was a Fulbright scholar in Amman, Jordan, where he conducted research on the peace treaty between Israel and Jordan. An Arabic speaker, he's the co-author of The Prosperity Agenda. We're going to take a brief station break. We'll be back looking into the exodus of Senate and House members of Congress who are quitting in many cases because of frustration with polarization and gridlock as a minority within a minority prevents majority rule. Tried so hard each time, each time I just can't make it. Feeling fast vibrations and I just can't take it. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is James Thurber, the University Distinguished Professor of Government and founder and former director of the Center for Congressional and Presidential Studies at American University. He's the author of numerous books and more than 80 articles and chapters on Congress, interest groups and lobbying, campaigns and elections. And he's the author of Congress and Diaspora Politics, The Influence of Ethnic and Foreign Lobbying, and most recently, Campaigns and Elections American Style. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Thurber. Good to be here. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's quite an exodus of members of Congress who are retiring now, uh, both from the Senate and the House. And it could tip the Senate uh, and the House one way or the other. And it seems that a lot of it's to do with the frustration of polarization and paralysis and the toxic partisan nature of politics now on Capitol Hill. But in general, looking at this list, and we can go through the list, James, is, is it a reflection of the fact that the good people, the traditional sort of sensible people that could work across the aisle are leaving, and that means that the radicals and the bomb throwers have more and more influence? In other words, are, they, are, the, are the crazies driving out the sensible people? Well, it's higher uh, exiting than usual. It's higher than the last three election cycles and higher, really, the last 30 years is one of the highest times so far is troubling. And I think that the sensible people in the Republican Party are leaving. There's some Democrats leaving also. I think the picture of the Senate is likely to be very difficult for the, for the Democrats. And so... I think there may be even others who are thinking about leaving there. It may it may turn and become Republican. The House of Representatives is is uh, looks pretty competitive. It may flip and become Democratic. And so there's some Republican members there that are upset with their far right. They don't want to go home and pers- persuade their constituents that they're a governing party after the the circus that they went through for weeks. Uh, and the fact that they can't pass a, uh, a, a appropriation bills and CRs, uh, they want out. It's not it's not fun anymore. There's very slim margins of control. So therefore, people on the far right in the Republican Party in particular can can really control things. And that's what we've seen. Uh, 
Um, by the way, Congress generally has a high turnover, higher than most boards, like for IBM or Apple or others. Let's put that in context. And what does that do? It, it brings a, a, a lot of people who are amateurs. They're losing a great deal of expertise. I know a lot of people in America would like to have term limits, but with term limits, you get people coming in that really don't know about how the place works. They don't know the subject matter of the committees that are involved, which is very important. Uh, and so therefore it's troubling. We have a dysfunctional Congress polarized between the parties within the Republican party and highly competitive between the house and the Senate in terms of policymaking. It doesn't look good after the next election. And it doesn't look good for the Democrats holding on to the Senate uh, because you've got, well, Senator Carper of Democrat, a Democrat of Delaware is leaving, but that's a safe Democratic seat, I imagine. Ben Cardin of Maryland is also leaving. That's probably a safe seat. Debbie Stabenow, a Democrat of Michigan, she's leaving. I'm not sure how, how that would go in terms of whether the Republicans could pick up a seat there. Mitt Romney is the Republican that's leaving, but that obviously will be replaced by a Republican. Joe Manchin is leaving uh, in West Virginia, and there's no question that the Republican former governor will pick up that seat. So that doesn't look good for the Democrats, does it, in terms no, it of... Plus, plus there are several other seats that are competitive for the Democrats. And, and in reality, the real election in America, in the House of Representatives in particular, because of redistricting, but the real election in America is the primary election. And uh, the invisible primary is how much money people ha have and how much how much visibility they have, what, how they're doing in the polls. And that's what's going on right now. Many of these people that are leaving, by the way, are running for higher office. So there's there's ambition people running for higher office. There's uh, frustration and anger uh, and dysfunction in the place, and they're leaving for that. And then others, remember, we have this magnetic field around Washington, D.C. It's called the Beltway. And when people try to leave Washington after they leave Congress, they get sucked right back in frequently to do what? To become advocates, to become lobbyists. They have a two-year cooling-off period in the Senate, one year in the House. But, you know, this is the show. Nobody really wants to leave, and they can cash in and make a lot of money. Now, none of these people are saying that, but I suspect many of these people who, who say they want to go home and be with the family back in the states that they come from, I uh, just watch them. Many of them stay in Washington, D.C. So in terms of the House, obviously, with George Santos leaving, the Democrats would probably pick up that seat in Long Island. Representative Dan Kildee, a Democrat of, of uh, Michigan, I don't know whether the Dems could lose that seat. Jennifer Wexon, Democrat of Virginia. Virginia seems to be trending pretty well for Democrats. How do you see the, the House uh, yeah. races? Sorry uh, to interrupt you, but especially in Northern Virginia, where Wexon comes from, it's likely to be a Democratic seat. I it looks pretty good, in my opinion, in the House. There are about 18 members that came from districts where Biden won overwhelmingly. And they're very worried. They're, mo they're so-called moderates. They're very worried about the perception of the party not being able to function and being run by 
by and Republicans say this by a bunch of nuts. That's a quote from a Republican uh, on the far right, and so they're 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 worried. This is way too early on polls for the presidency, for senators and House members. But I I would lean towards the House turning Democratic, Senate, Republican, and the uh, the presidency is just too close to call. It's way too far out. Lots of things can happen there. But but the bottom line is, it is very likely we have divided party government, meaning a different party in the House, the Senate, and the presidency. And when that happens, very little gets done. Very little is getting done now because it's divided party government. To put it in perspective, when we have unified party government, Obama uh, had a 93% batting average. Presidential sports guard dropped to 38% when he lost the House and the Senate. And it is dropping now in terms of success uh, for Biden for a variety of reasons. And if that continues to be divided party government, we will continue to have problems appropriating, uh, continuing resolutions and not addressing some of the most important issues in America, like the wars that we're we're involved with indirectly and immigration and the maldistribution of wealth from the very wealthy to to uh, working class and below. These things are not being addressed. They're just being kicked down the uh, down the road. The one thing I worry about is that the House and the Senate will continue to centralize power and not allow, quote, the regular order to occur. In other words, for uh, subcommittees and committees to do their work, to deliberate and come forward with pieces of legislation frequently that are more bipartisan than what hits the floor. If you continue to have this uh, uh, polarization and divided party government, it's going to be very hard for people to govern. So is that to say, James Thurber, that we'll continue to have minority rule? Because it's that's the bizarre thing about the Congress is that, for example, there's a substantial majority in both the House and the Senate that want to give aid to Ukraine, but it's blocked by uh, by a, a, a fairly virulent minority. That's right. It's really a minority of a minority. It's going on, and it's in the House of Representatives, and it's people on the far right in uh, the Republican Party. Remember that that uh, uh, Speaker Pelosi, when she was Speaker, she had a majority of two, and then a majority of four, and she still got through legislation that the Progressive Caucus, and there were 98 of them during this period, didn't want. And just to tell you a quick little story, she she had the, the, the Progressive Caucus walk out when she was pushing through the mansion bill rather than build back better, a huge compromise with the mansion bill that was going through. And they all said, no, we're not going to vote for it. They went over to an auditorium in the visitor center and started railing on how we can't do this. Pelosi was a member of the Progressive Caucus, never attended, but she walked over there, opened up the door, walked down the aisle. Everybody looked up. She went down, sat in the second row, and all of a sudden the speakers started talking about how important it was to pass this piece of legislation in honor of the speaker. And they went back, they voted, and they they passed it overwhelmingly, even though they only had a four-vote margin 
that is different these days. There's no discipline in the Republican Party compared to the discipline that Pelosi had in the uh, Democratic Party. And this new speaker, Mike Johnson, uh, who I, I find quite troubling, given he's a Christian nationalist and totally obsessed with uh, a hatred of uh, homosexuals, and he has the craziest ideas about the separation of church and state, and he's also obsessed with abortion. So is he going to be able to get things moving? Well, he also, to add to that, he has stands on uh, uh, gun regulation that goes against a huge majority of Americans that want more regulation, and he doesn't want to give women... Uh, uh, freedom of choice. Uh, the party that says it's for freedom doesn't want to give women freedom of choice, which plays in, unfortunately, because of the policy, but it plays in to the Democrats uh, really being able to recruit more people to vote for Democrats in the upcoming election. He barely got in. He is a person who, uh, uh, if he continues to need the Democrats, and in this in this constitutional system we have, you have to compromise. You have to reach out, especially when you have a slim majority majority, and use Democrats. When he continues to do that, as he just did, he's going to be uh, have great pressure, may, may be pushed out of the leadership, even though he's a pure conservative part of the far right. He still needs Democratic votes to get something done. And uh, that's going to be very hard for him. Uh, I think it's his time is limited. His power is limited as a result of that. So that means more dysfunction then, right? I mean, are they, are the Republicans prepared to have another circus of voting for a new speaker? It's it creates dysfunction, frustration, gridlock, uh, and then it's a matter of of uh, the Republicans blaming the Democrats for not getting anything done, the Democrats blaming the Republicans and people of the hardcore supporters of uh, of Trump. And many of them are not philosophically conservative Republicans, but they they will go along with, with blaming the Democrats for not getting anything done. Uh, the Democrats, on the other hand, uh, will... Uh, you know, they'll blame the Republicans and we get back to the same situation. If we don't have an overwhelming majority in either body, we continue to have slim major margins. We've got to cooperate. And if they don't cooperate, we've got gridlock. So just in closing then, uh, James Thurber, um, we mentioned the likelihood that the Republicans would pick up the Senate and the Democrats would pick up the House, and that leaves the executive branch. And in some polls, Trump is ahead, which is hard to believe, but that's the case. And now, of course, we're learning that Biden is bleeding votes from young people and also from Arab Americans, and particularly in the key state of Michigan. So obviously, it's a long time, it's a year before the election, but what do you think in terms of Biden's fortunes? Well, I think that you have to look at the battleground states. So there are about six battleground states, maybe narrow it down to four. And the latest poll that's scaring all the Democrats is the poll from the New York Times last week that shows Trump ahead uh, in all of those but one state. I, now, the point everybody else is making, pollsters and others, it's way too early. 
to uh, determine what's going to happen and determine from the polls. Uh, as we get closer, we'll know better. It's likely that Trump will get the nomination. It's likely that that uh, Biden will have the nomination. And then it becomes a question of Biden's age and perception of what he's done for young people, for, for minorities, uh, for America, and what he's done in the international scene with NATO and and with Israel and Hamas and Palestinians and Ukraine, um, it's likely that this election will uh, be about enthusiasm, lack of it, uh, and turnout, lack of it. Uh, and if that happens on the Democratic side, uh, Trump will be our next president. Now, that's that's worrisome if you believe in a in the Constitution and you believe in. A, in a democracy and not uh, electing a uh, an authoritarian who's promised to do all kinds of really radical things. Uh, so it's worrisome, um, but it's a long time between now uh, and the election. Many things will happen. Uh, you, know, you couldn't have predicted the situation in, in Israel, the vile slaughtering of Israelis by by Hamas uh, and what's happened since then. Um, <clears throat> so we'll see. There, Hopefully there will not be other wars. Uh, other things can happen, though, that will influence the election. I'm worried, though. It's When it's too close to call, it's a, it's a worry. If somebody doesn't vote for, doesn't vote, it's a vote for Trump, in my opinion. If somebody votes for a third-party person, and many of them uh, will draw votes from the Democratic Party. It is a vote for Trump. So you have to worry about the turnout question, enthusiasm question, uh, and whether uh, some third party person will take votes away from Biden in the battleground states. Uh, the national polls are interesting, but the battleground states are what one needs to focus on. Well, James Thurber, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Yeah, thank you, Ian, for having me. And again, I've been speaking with James Thurber, the University Distinguished Professor of Government and a founder and former director of the Center for Congressional and Presidential Studies at American University. He's the author of numerous books and more than 80 articles and chapters on Congress, interest groups and lobbying and campaigns and elections. And is the author of Congress and Diaspora Politics, The Influence of Ethnic and Foreign Lobbying, and most recently, Campaigns and Elections, American Style. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an assessment of how much the deteriorating relations between Canada and India and tensions between the U.S. and India over an assassination plot on American soil are impacting joint efforts to deal with China's growing influence in the Indo-Pacific.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Cleo Pascal, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, focusing on the Indo-Pacific region and the strategic implications of the intersection of geopolitical, geoeconomic, and geophysical change. She has briefed government departments of the United States, the United Kingdom, the European Union, India, and many others, and is the author of Global Warring, How Environmental, Economic, and Political Crises Will Redraw the World Map. And she recently testified before Congress on Chinese influence operations in the Pacific Islands. And she has an article at The Guardian, Three Upcoming Events That Could Torpedo Pacific Peace. Welcome to Background Briefing, Cleo Pascal. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us, Cleo. And just in the context of India versus China and China's influence, uh, both uh, growing influence, both in the Indian Ocean and in the Pacific Ocean, let's just touch on what's happening between Canada, since you're Canadian, uh, and China, and in particular India, because there's been the, the... assassination of a Sikh activist in Canada, which has created a rift between Canada and India. And now, of course, there's the U.S.'s... Well, we're not quite sure what's going on with an an assassination attempt on another Sikh activist here in the United States and the extent to which India may have been planning to kill somebody on American soil, which has now got the U.S. Biden administration in private talks with India, which we don't know about, but presumably if that were true, that would be very, very, it's a real red line. So this is obviously not particularly helpful if the U.S. is trying to form a tighter bonds with India in order to contain China if they're at loggerheads over what would would be rather brazen action on the part of Prime Minister Modi. Uh, yeah, and there's a lot, a lot to unpack. Um, I don't really know what's going on uh, on the on the U.S. one, but the 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 Canadian one, there it's, it's sort of helpful at least for me to to kind of disaggregate um, the event this 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 murder of the of this of this Kalistani um, in in British Columbia and the way that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau presented the information because I don't I don't know what happened with the murder but I do know how he presented the information which was extraordinary um, he had had just come back from a really disastrous trip to India for the for the G20 and uh, <laughs> really it couldn't have gone worse uh, he he didn't get meetings that he probably had wanted uh, he had to change hotel rooms. Um, his the plane broke down and he was stuck there an extra two days, um, and so he can't. And this came off the back of an, his previous trip to India, which was also disastrous, where they were perceived to have dressed up in ethnic clothing and kind of played at uh, at being Indian tourists, possibly for the domestic market, but it really didn't go well. And they invited to to um, a Canadian diplomatic event somebody who had been. Um, a, tried to murder uh, an Indian. <laughs> so it, it was all, it was just a really a mess on top of a mess. And at the same time, 
Canada is in the process now of trying to come to grips with PRC uh, political warfare activities that have um, that have been tr trying to distort Canadian elections. And there's a, an inquiry that's starting looking at foreign interference in the in the Canadian electoral process. So the day before he stands up in Parliament and says whatever he said, he had had a dis disastrous trips to India. Uh, Canada was perceived as being soft on terrorism, which had included in the Khalistani context a bombing of a plane in 1985 that killed 239 people, which was never really fully in investigated. Um, and he had this inquiry, political inquiry into China, which he was very uncomfortable with for whatever for reasons we can talk about if you're interested in. Then he stands up in Parliament and he says, uh, with mushy wording, you know, India's trying to do hit or India did a hit on a Canadian citizen. So then the narrative changes. It's not just China that's uh, interfering in Canada. It's India also. It's not him that was disastrous with the Indians. It was India that's been attacking him and poor Canada. So he flipped the political narrative or, try, or tried to. So that that I'm pretty comfortable with with saying. And if, you know, if it was a, really about getting to the bottom of what happened with this hit, um, I, I would have been more comfortable if they would have started prosecutions. If he has enough information to accuse um, a, a democratic country, which has its problems, but it is a democratic country that, as you said, is on the front line of this war with China, of doing this, then I would hope he'd have enough information to start prosecutions for the actual hitmen on the ground, which has not happened as of yet. So that's a very long-winded way of saying, so far, all I can certainly say is that Canada, the Canadian Prime Minister made a political move on the floor of Parliament. And I, I'm not, I don't yet have enough information to know about the rest of what's going on. Well, let's talk about what you know about and what you've been writing about. Again, your recent article at The Guardian, three upcoming events that could torpedo Pacific peace. What is clearly going on is that both China and India are engaged in influencing these small islands, whether they're in the Indian Ocean or in the Pacific Ocean. In the case of India, they've just had a setback with the election of this new president of the Maldives, Mohammed Muizu, uh, who is now going to kick out the small Indian uh, force, uh, a garrison of Indian troops in this uh, this island. And he's seen as being more pro-Chinese than his predecessor. So is this a win for China? If they got a base right to the south of India in the middle of the Indian Ocean, they've already got a base in Djibouti uh, for, further to the north in the, in the Red Sea. This would seem to be a big win for China at the expense of India. Yes, and it's something that China's been working uh, on for a while. So there was an, there was another election in 2013 in Maldives where um, a similar uh, pro-Chinese candidate came to power. And in that case, it seems like the, the way that the vote was swung is there, there are a lot of Maldivians who work outside of the country. And so you can do mail-in voting, um, overseas mail-in voting. And uh, it looks like what happened was candidates who were favorable to China um, 
you know, funding was provided in one way or another to expat communities of Maldivians in Sri Lanka to do overseas voting. So if you're looking at the domestic vote in the Maldives in that election, it, it didn't look like the Chinese candidate would win. But when the overseas voting came in, um, it tipped it in favor of the pro-Chinese candidate. And in that, in that kind of, it got complicated from there on in, but there was a, an ensuing period of time when the government, uh, which was actually a different government, but it, it was not security-minded, was leasing entire islands, and China has leased about a dozen islands. Um, so it, had, it already has the capacity to set up uh, dual use at the very least bases. And it's not just, as you mentioned, it's Djibouti, but there's also what's happening in Gwadar, which is Pakistan, uh, which is part of the China-Pakistan economic corridor. And then, of course, there's Sri Lanka, and there's stuff going on in in, uh, in Myanmar. So you really can see this this string of pearls that's been spoken about for over, over a decade is, is starting to take shape. And it's not just about constraining India, it's also about um, gaining uh, expansionist control from the South China Sea down through the Pacific Islands and then up into the Indian Ocean. It's this. It's it's functionally the same route that Imperial Japan was looking at from a maritime perspective, you know, in the late 30s and early 40s. Well, let's turn to the Pacific, where China, of course, is is making inroads in the Solomons largely because of ineptitude on the part of the Australians and a kind of neglect on the part of the United States. I mean, the idea that the, the critical battle you just mentioned in Japanese in World War II, I mean, the critical battle of Guadalcanal was the turning point in the Pacific War for the United States, and yet they have, through neglect and, and through incompetence on the part of the Australians, the Chinese have made inroads with a crooked prime minister who is very much in China's pocket, and he is now suspending elections because he would he would lose them, and he's doing a little PR stunt with the Pacific Games that began what a week ago. So t tell us about what's happening in the Solomons. Yeah, well, you 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 encapsulated it very well. Yeah. So as as you, Guadalcanal is the is the main island in the Solomon Islands. It's also the capital uh, where the capital is. Um, and uh, there was, a, especially after after the end of World War II, um, there was a we real withdrawal of the U.S. from that region strategically. Embassies were closed. In fact, the, the embassy in Solomon Islands was closed. Um, and a kind of strategic oversight, so to speak, from a Five Eyes perspective was in that part handed over to uh, Australia. Um, which, which you know, went in with just with an approach that that really hasn't worked. Um, it's there's a whole it's a, it's a whole combination of things. There's a almost neo-colonialism aspect to it. There's a, there's a, a economic exploitation aspect to it, um, and there and there's a, a a real kind of oddness about you know you you put your finger on it when you said he's he's. The, this prime minister is corrupt. The, re the reason he could delay elections was because he used a Chinese slush fund to pay off 39 out of the 50 members of parliament in order to get enough votes to uh, be able to change the constitution and postpone elections. And uh, the Chinese money the, the, that goes to his cronies and 
you know, like, likely to him as well, in many cases passes through Australian and New Zealand banks, uh, Australian real estate, all that sort of stuff. So if the Australians just did their job and, you know, they'll go around the Pacific preaching transparency, accountability, human rights, rule of law, if they just apply, applied it domestically to the uh, corruption from the Pacific that is running through their own systems, they could clean up the Pacific and level the playing field with China extremely quickly. China grows off of this this fuel of corruption. If you cut out the corruption, it it's greatly weakened, and uh, you know the the people of the region have a choice that the they they get to vote their own people out, they get to develop their own industries. But because of the Chinese money, all of that gets distorted, and you get this metastasization of the of the Chinese. Um, state control uh, system to the point where he's putting in like 160 Huawei towers. The country doesn't need it, but it becomes, it helps him have a surveillance state. So uh, the, chi- the the way that Australia has been acting is is sort of perplexing. And I've, I've, I've asked, you know, Australian colleagues, you know, why, why don't you go after him? And they'll say, well, what are we supposed to do? Go after every corrupt guy? It's like, yeah, go after every corrupt guy. You know, but at least start with the big ones to give hope to the honest people on the ground who are getting squashed and pushed to the side and can't defend themselves. They're really incredible fighters uh, in the Pacific Islands, people who are trying to stand up to this. And they, 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 they have no oxygen because it's all being sucked up by this uh, Chinese corruption. And because the U.S. ships are now denied entry into Guadalcanal, the very island uh, that's so key to the World War II victory, which is a great irony. But isn't the U.S., as much as the Australians have dropped the ball, the U.S. have also neglected uh, this whole region in the Pacific, which where China's making inroads, because, I mean, it's chump change. You talk, The kind of money that would you'd need to... to invest in these islands which have, uh, have terrible poverty is nothing compared i mean you, you know the the price of one f-35 fighter as you point out in your article the guardian would be enough to lift up a lot of these countries yeah and and currently china is fighting in, on the political warfare battlefield right so an F-45 isn't isn't going to win it for you anyway, but clearing out the corruption and then essentially what you have to do is block and build. You have to block the malign influence and then build the local economy and the local independence and, and sovereignty. The, the toughest fighters during World War II during that era were people like the Coast Watchers who, in, in Solomon Islands who were, the, who were locals who put it all on the line and risked their families. They lived there to defend their own countries. And they would do it again if they were given, you know, given a chance. You know, they, they don't want to be a colony of Australia and they, they don't want to be a colony of China. They want to be their own countries. And it, it, they are small, but they could do it. There, there are a lot of examples of small economies that, that are successful. You know, I mean, Seychelles or even Maldives, you know, they're not they're they're doing okay they're doing it they're they're doing enough but what's the u.s is sort of realizing that something needs to be done they've reopened the embassy 
in uh, in Solomon's, but there's no consular services, which which is a real problem. It means that Solomon Islanders have to travel to a different country to apply for a visa to visit the U.S., whereas the Chinese will give any Solomon Islander who wants to go to China a visa. Um, the the other thing is that yes, they, the ships have been blocked, but the during these Pacific Games, the U.S. sent the uh, hospital ship Mercy, Navy hospital ship Mercy, which effectively signals to the locals that they are that the U.S. is supportive of these games that have been used to deny them democracy. So and and the and Sogavari was perfectly happy to let the Mercy in because it lets him show his uh, colleagues, look, I can get the Chinese to do what I want. I can get the Australians to do what I want. I can get the U.S. to do what I want. So why would you go up against me? Right. But he doesn't want to have an election. <laughs> nope. And, and he's brought in a huge number of troops and drones and all sorts of security equipment under the guise of these games. I mean, Bro I don't know. Brought it in from China, you mean? He brought it in from China and the Australians. The oh Australians gave him yeah. weapons. I, you know, so it's, I, you know, and again, I've spoken to Australian colleagues and said, what do you, you know, what are you doing? And they said, well, you know, if we don't do it, the Chinese will. And I was like, well, then why don't you not do it and complain about the Chinese doing it and put, you know, sanctions on them for militarizing a peaceful society. And uh, again, try to take the side of the, of the democratic uh, freedom-loving Solomon Islanders, instead of trying to mimic what the Chinese are doing. You're never going to beat them at their own game, and it's a horrible game anyway. Wow. Well, look, obviously this is a subject we'll have to keep following with you, Cleo, because uh, obviously there's other islands involved, many of which uh, recognize Taiwan, of course, and China's yeah. in, in a battle to win them over. So... We will pick it up again, and I thank you for joining us. Uh, always a pleasure. Thank you for your interest. Take care. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Cleo Pascal, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, focusing on the Indo-Pacific region and the strategic implications of the intersection of geopolitical, geoeconomic, and geophysical change. She has briefed government departments of the United States, United Kingdom, the European Union, India, and many others. And she's the author of Global Warring, How Environmental, Economic, and Political Crises Will Redraw the World Map. And she recently testified before Congress on Chinese influence operations in the Pacific Islands. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. America.